How is everyone? Uh, we were just joking around right before uh, the lights came on and I was supposed to start speaking that this may be the last time we have to do this pre-recorded thing and we're pretty happy about that. So we're excited about next weekend, um, people being in here and worshiping a little bit and getting back to normal. Really, really excited. So I hope you guys are excited about that as well. Hope you're excited about the worship nights and Encounter and Eon and Evident and all those things cranking back up and um, really, really stoked about that. So I hope you guys are as well. If you haven't been with us, uh, we got quite a bit of ground to cover today, uh, but it's a really interesting um, piece of the Bible that we're going to cover. We're in the book of Matthew. We've been in it for quite some time now, uh, several months. We just got done last week with chapter 11. Now, if you don't know where the book of Matthew is, if you have a Bible, it is the first book of the New Testament. And I say this virtually every week. I think it's probably the most important book of the Bible, extremely important. And um, the majority of what we've gone through so far has been straight from the mouth of Jesus himself. Jesus talking, teaching, um, as we saw in chapter 11, a little bit of rebuking. He comes against the religious leaders and uh, different cities and tells them how unresponsive they've been to the miracles he's done and the healings he has done and uh, the call to, to come to the Father through him and how they've been unresponsive to that. But at the end of chapter 11 that we covered last week, Jesus says something really interesting. It's a very positive thing, but it's, it's kind of a fascinating thing that he says. He says, come to me because my yoke is light. My burden is light, Right? And it's interesting, we talked about last week, I haven't seen this much in my lifetime because I haven't been raised around farms or out in the country, but how they would put a yoke on different animals and animals would pull uh, plows or different things like that and how that yoke is a burden, it's heavy. But Jesus says, my yoke is, is good. It's, it's, it's a better yoke, take this one on. And so what we talked about last week is we're all gonna carry a burden. All of us are going to have responsibilities. All of us are going to have things that we have to accomplish. And we asked ourselves, is the yoke, the burden, the responsibilities of the world, is that working? Or should we try something else? And of course, that something else would be Jesus's burden or responsibilities. Okay. This week, we're going to talk about this. We're going to kind of go down the same line a little bit but maybe a little bit different. And we're going to ask, what is the state of our heart? What is the real state of our heart? What do we want? What are we looking for? Do we have a desire to grow closer to God? What are we in this for? And so we're going to get into that a little bit in chapter 12. We're only going to do about half, a little bit more than half of chapter 12. We're not going to do it all because it's a long chapter. And there's a lot of really fascinating stuff in here. So if you have a Bible, first book of the New Testament, we're in the 12th chapter of Matthew. If you have your smartphone with you, all the notes, sermons, uh, uh, all the sermons from the past, all the notes for this lesson, everything is on the app. Click on service times and sermon notes and you'll have everything right there. If you're watching on uh, Facebook or YouTube or online at our website, all the notes are also on the website. And the more prominent things I'm gonna say or the biggest points we're gonna kind of carry away will be at the bottom of the screen. So those things will be there. So it makes it a little easier to follow along, okay? So we should be in good shape. We should have everything we need. And again, I'm looking forward to actually looking out and seeing some people in here next week. So I'm excited about that. But let me pray. We'll jump into chapter 12 and um, see where God leads us, okay? Lord, we love you. We thank you, God. Um, we thank you for your provision. 
We thank you, Lord, that you've taken care of us, protected us, provided for us, God. Lord, I pray uh, that as we continue to kind of transition back into to whatever is gonna be the new normal, God, that you just keep your hand on this church, keep your hand on every church in our community, Lord. Thank you for the other pastors of our community and the nonprofits and what they do. Lord, just give us wisdom during this time and help us to, to know how to move forward, God, that best honors you and honors the people in our community. Lord, keep your hand on me as I teach, God. Lord, give me grace and give me mercy, Lord, and help everything that I say to reflect your heart, God. We love you. We thank you, Lord. And um, we pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, chapter 12, I'm going to read a little bit. We're going to be talking about the Sabbath day for, for a minute here, and I'll go back and break it down. Okay, here we go. So at that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some of the heads of grain. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How he entered the house of God and they ate. They ate the bread of the, uh, of the presence, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath days, the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? I tell you, that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath day was kind of the holy day that was sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. And this was a time where there was a whole slew of rules that people had to follow to honor the Sabbath day, right? Which is one of the Ten Commandments, to honor a Sabbath. Now, what this particular command had become had become kind of a trump card for the religious people. Basically, this day of rest, how strictly people observed it was how the religious people would kind of gauge how holy you were. Now, we're gonna talk a lot about Sabbath, right? Or rest, or a day of worship and reflection, okay? We're gonna talk about that a lot today. Now, let me get this just kind of like, let me lay down the ground rules a little bit with this. Corporate worship, church, if you wanna call it, is extremely important. And I'm gonna say that multiple times during this. And I think during this time, we've seen just how important corporate worship is, right? Corporate worship is extremely important. But in our Christian culture in the United States, we can often make the act of going to church the barometer of how good of a Christian we are, though we need to go, right? Just going to a worship service once a week does not make us a Christian, and it does not make us holy and righteous, okay? So Jesus was passing through some grain fields one day with his disciples on the Sabbath day. The Pharisees saw this. They saw him passing through. They saw them picking up grain and eating it because they were hungry, which was permissible in the law. If you go back into the book of Deuteronomy, they were allowed to pass through fields and you could eat off other people's fields as you were passing through. It was totally lawful. But the Pharisees saw this and they considered the work of separating the grain and eating it, they considered that work, therefore breaking the Sabbath. 
And they saw that Jesus was allowing it. So they started to point a finger at Jesus and say, you're a bad teacher. You have raised up bad students. You guys are breaking the law. Look how bad you are. So what does Jesus do? And this is so important. There's so many little nuggets today that are gonna be really important. So Jesus doesn't fire back, right? He doesn't like make fun of their mom or like call them bad names or throw a punch. He doesn't do that. Jesus goes right back to the Bible. And instead of getting into this petty argument, Jesus goes back to the scripture. And he reminds them that King David, right? That he also broke the Sabbath to feed hungry people in 1 Samuel chapter 21. That on the Sabbath, he had people that were hungry. He went into the temple. He got the temple food, which was designated for the priests, and he fed hungry people. Now, here's what we learn. There's a lot of things to learn from that. But here's the main thing to learn. If we are going to get into a theological debate, right? You and one of your friends that calls themselves a Christian or me and one of you and you want to argue about something theological, we always have to go straight back to the scripture. That's what Jesus does. A thousand times in the Bible, whenever people challenge him, he goes back to the word of God because that's the foundation. That is the authority for every true believer. So we have to go back to that, right? If we're gonna decide theology, if we're a Christian, the Bible is what determines or should determine our theology. He also goes back to Leviticus 24. And that's when the priests were allowed to work on the Sabbath day. They were allowed to prepare food and eat it. The priests were on the Sabbath, right? They were also able to help other people worship on the Sabbath. So kind of like me and the rest of the people that work here at the church, we work on the weekends while other people are enjoying their Sabbath. We're working. And that's permissible. That's okay. That's, that's our job. So Jesus quotes the book of Hosea. This is actually his second time quoting it. And he says, if you guys would have understood that I want mercy and not sacrifice, what Jesus is doing is he is reminding the Pharisees that the whole point of the Sabbath day is to show mercy, to help people out and to help yourself, right? To be merciful, to receive God's mercy. But the Pharisees had forgotten this, right? Their hearts had become so hard. And Jesus says something greater than the temple is here. Now we're going to get into kind of this more logical side of this argument. Jesus, excuse me, Jesus is calling the Pharisees to use common sense, right? Use common sense. Now, though following the command to honor the Sabbath is vital, right? God told us to do that. We're also to take care of ourselves. What does that mean? What that means is sometimes people have to work on the weekends. You might have a weekend job at Amazon or Nissan or something like that to where you have to work Saturdays and Sundays. Or some of you might be out of town for, for business or you might be on vacation that week. So what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is, practically speaking, sometimes people have to eat, right? They have to work, they have to prepare, they have to do things just to take care of themselves. And sometimes those obligations may fall on the Sabbath. So for us, that means this. Listen, guys, it's okay if you go shopping on a Sunday or a Saturday. It's okay for you to work on the weekends if that's what your job requires. 
The real point of Sabbath is not necessarily observing a certain day, but it is growing in your relationship with God. It is intentionally setting aside time to rest, reflect, worship, pray, get closer to God. But, but we're going to go back to this. You should still be at a worship service. A corporate service is still a vital part of the Christian experience. So here's where we always mess up with conversations like Sabbath is we struggle to find balance. And that's what Jesus was trying to tell the Pharisees. Be balanced in your approach. The balance for us is this. The Bible commands us in Hebrews 10.25 to keep meeting corporately, like what we're going to do next weekend, right? That we're to continue doing that more and more and more until Jesus comes back. That's a good thing. It's healthy. It's what we need. We need the community. Church is vitally important, but we know that sometimes people have other obligations. So church is vitally important. And so we need to be gracious to know that some people have to work or some people have to be out of town or they might have other things going on. And the other balance of that, though, is when we can be in a church environment, we need to be there. Sometimes we have other things to do, but we don't need to be looking for excuses to not be in a corporate worship setting. It is extremely important. Balance, balance, balance. So like I said earlier, Sabbath is less of a day, a Saturday or a Sunday, and it is more of a lifestyle. It's more how we live. The point of Sabbath was to bring us closer to God and to give us rest. It's less about a particular day. It's more about the state of our heart. So what that means is this. Sabbath isn't you like Netflixing out for 18 hours, right? Man, I'm just resting. It's my Sabbath. That's not Sabbath. Sabbath isn't just hangout time. Sabbath is intentional time to grow in our relationship and with intimacy with our Creator. This is the time where we read the Bible, where we rest, where we take time to pray and worship together and reflect. That's the point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is for the soul, right? It's so our souls can rest, so we can kind of re-energize a little bit. Okay, next part, a little bit more talk about the Sabbath. Moving on from there, he entered their synagogue, and there he saw a man who had a shriveled hand. And in order to accuse him, they asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus replied to them, who among you, if you had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out. <clears throat> a person is worth far more than a sheep. So it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Then he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was restored just as good as the other hand. But the Pharisees went out and they plotted against him how they might kill him. So we're going to see that now the opposition has taken it up to a malicious, murderous level. So <clears throat> Jesus moved on from the fields now to the synagogue. Now he was on the Pharisees' home turf. And when he walked into the synagogue, there was a man that had a withered hand. And he was more than likely planted there 
by the Pharisees in order to trap Jesus into breaking the Sabbath again, right? Two times in one day. So the Pharisees had resorted to entrapment, trying to, to trap Jesus into doing more work on the Sabbath. And so before Jesus goes to heal the man, though, he's gonna go back into a little bit about what the heart of the Sabbath is, the point of the Sabbath. And I love what Jesus says here. Jesus says, which one of you who had a sheep that fell into a pit wouldn't help the sheep out, right? Just because it's the Sabbath day, why wouldn't you help someone? That's the whole point of the Sabbath. And for people who are ministers, our job on the Sabbath is to help lift out the sheep that have fallen into a pit. The pit that we help lift people out of is the pit of sin, that we're to help people out of that pit. For the believer, for the one who is experiencing Sabbath on that day, the benefit for them is it's a time to worship, to rest, to reflect, to be healed, to be helped. And so healing, Jesus was saying, was beneficial not only for the one who's being healed, it's also beneficial for the one that is taking part in the healing. So Jesus looked at the man and he said, Stretch out your hand. Let's see it, right? And as he stretched it out, it said it was made just as good as his other hand. Now, here's what's fascinating about the Pharisees is that they saw this. They saw the power. They saw the authority. They saw this man get healed, and they still did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They still didn't believe it. I say this all the time. I think I might have said it last week. Oftentimes people will tell me or, or, or say to me, or maybe you've even heard this. If I could just see God, I would believe in him. And it's not true. There are so many people that did see God. They even saw God do miraculous things. And they didn't believe. And the reason why so many people can be in in they can literally be in the presence of God working but not see him is because we have preconceived notions. We are blinded by our own selfishness. We are blinded by our own preconceived notions of what God should be. And we often want someone to save us, but we don't want someone to tell us how to live. We want a savior, but not a Lord. We want to be healed, but we don't want to be held accountable. We want what we want, and we don't want what God wants. That's our problem. That's why we don't see God moving more around us. Because honestly, it's not the God that we want. We want something more like us. Something that validates what I already think and believe. And that's why we don't see the true God many times. And listen to this, and look how important this is. The Pharisees, man, this is so huge, guys. They couldn't control Jesus, so they wanted to kill Jesus. And listen, we do the same thing. Corey, are you saying that I want to kill Jesus? In a way, yes. Here's the thing. Many of us, if we cannot have faith on our terms, man, I hope someone's listening to me right now. If we cannot have Jesus on our terms, we want to murder the biblical Jesus and replace him with a Jesus of our design. What does that mean? That means that we go into the word of God, which by the way, every single word of that book is inspired by God, right? 
Every single word is there because God wants it there. Not just the red letter words, all of them. So whenever we crack this book open and we say, well, I like this part about social justice. I don't like this part about how I should live sexually. I like this part about helping the poor, but I don't like this part about if a man doesn't want to work, he shouldn't be allowed to eat. I don't like that. So when we start omitting the parts that we're uncomfortable with, what we are doing is we are murdering the biblical Jesus and replacing him with the Jesus of our own creation. And that is not going to save our souls. What are we looking for? Are we looking for a God in my image? Or am I looking to conform to the God that I am created in the image of? That's the question. It's one we need to ask ourselves. So Jesus was aware of this, the fact that he was going to be killed. Large crowds followed and he healed them all. He warned them not to make him known so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And this is from the book of Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has had justice or he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. Hmm. So Jesus was aware that the Pharisees were now murderous. They wanted to kill him. Now it says he withdrew. Now let me get this straight. Jesus was not afraid. <laughs> he was not afraid. Jesus had a mission to accomplish, and he knew all the arguing and debating and, and talking about things that weren't important. He knew that that would detract him from discipling his 12 and going out and helping people and sharing the gospel. So he got away from the Pharisees. Now, as he got away, it said that huge crowds followed him. Why? The reason why is they kept seeing the, the healings and they kept hearing the teachings of Jesus and they kept trusting the Pharisees less and less. The people saw that this group is corrupt and this teacher is right on. So Jesus told people to not make him known. Listen, don't, don't make a big deal out of me is what he's saying. Don't go telling everyone about what I've done and these miracles and these things because he was trying to keep a low profile. But what he was really showing us is that Jesus's ministry wasn't a circus. It wasn't a carnival. It wasn't a light show. It wasn't about being the hippest and coolest and having the, the, the most popularity. That's not why Jesus was here. Jesus was here because he truly cared about the people. Jesus did ministry from the foundation of humility. Now, if we're to be Jesus followers, and man, so many people that have churches, and especially big churches, can we say the same about church leadership in the United States? Can we look at, man, I got to hold my tongue. Can we look at a bunch of these people that get up here and have all this popularity and write all these books and live in $3 million homes and wear $2,000 shoes? Can we look at these guys and say that it is all about them serving people? Can we say that it's all about the kingdom or, voice cracked there, or is it about them self-serving, right? 
Has there been a switch that has been flipped somewhere along the line in their ministry where maybe they started off legitimate, but somewhere along the line, it became more about them than it did about the people, more about the advancement of the kingdom of God. So Jesus was the fulfillment of so many prophecies from the Old Testament and a lot from the book of Isaiah. Matthew quotes Isaiah in verses 18 to 21 in what I just read. Now, what he's referring to is he's talking about the identity, the, the, the nature of Jesus when he was going to come. That the nature of the Savior, the Messiah King, was not going to be a politician. It wasn't going to be a military leader. That's what the people expected, right? It's still what we expect. Man, Jesus is a Republican. Jesus is a socialist. Jesus is this and that. And Jesus is not a politician. His kingdom is much greater than our kingdom, by the way, guys. He didn't come as a politician. He didn't come as a military leader. And because he didn't come the way people expected him to come, they rejected him. The way Jesus came wasn't like a politician or a soldier. Jesus came as a humble servant that was going to willingly suffer for mankind. And through these extremely unconventional means, through not fighting, Jesus was going to bring justice. By not shouting and yelling and, yelling and arguing and debating, he would set the captives free. By very unconventional means, Jesus was going to liberate those who wanted to be liberated. And the thing is, is Jesus stuck with his mission. I love this, man, and this is something we need to hear, especially those of you who spend way too much time on social media. Jesus did not waste time arguing and shouting in the streets. It's what it says. It's what Isaiah said. It's what Matthew quoted. Jesus didn't come to, to, to debate. He didn't come to argue. He didn't come to shout and see who was the loudest who could post the most junk on social media. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus taught of the kingdom. He healed. He saved. He wasn't here to win an argument. Jesus was here to lead justice to victory. So what we learn from that is this. Christians are not called to win a debate. Guys, it's not about you winning a debate. So recently, a lot of you guys have talked about Rabbi Zacharias passing away, and he was a trophy for the kingdom of God in this generation. Another man that passed away, I guess about a month before Rabbi Zacharias, one of my favorite teachers and speakers in the world, a man named Cy Rogers passed away pretty young. He was 63, I believe. Cy Rogers was one of the most bold, in-your-face teachers, and he was so eloquent, so well-spoken. And he would often talk about, he came out of the LGBTQ community, he would often talk about sexual addictions and sexual struggles, and something he always said that I thought was brilliant. He said, the mistake that Christians have made with the gay community is, Christians want to win an argument and make gay people straight. And Cy Rogers said, it's not about winning an argument, it's about turning gay people to Jesus Christ. It's not about winning a debate. It's not about winning a political argument. It's about turning people to Jesus. Christians, we're not here to win an argument. That's not what Jesus came to do. We are here, just like Christ, to demonstrate and teach the kingdom of God. That's why we are here. And we need to stick to that mission. Don't try to change people to your political party or your affiliations or your preferences. Just turn people to Jesus. And Jesus will do the work. Jesus will change the hearts of people, okay? Last part, it's kind of a long part. 
Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him. He healed him so that the man could both speak and see. All the crowds were astounded and said, could this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive him out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless first he ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder the house. Anyone who is not with me is against me. Anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the one to come. Now, we're going to get into some interesting territory here. Until this point in the book of Matthew, Jesus has been on the defensive, which means the Pharisees, right? The, the, the kind of bad guys of the book of Matthew, not all of them, but the majority of them, they would instigate and Jesus would defend, right? Now we see that Jesus goes on the offensive. Before they can really instigate, Jesus goes right at him. So the restoration of a demon-possessed man that could not speak and he could not see was going to serve as kind of a catalyst for Jesus to call out the fact that the Pharisees were hypocrites, they were corrupt, and their claims were audacious, right? Ridiculous. And Jesus is going to go straight at him. So after healing this demon-possessed man, a lot of the crowd looks at Jesus and they say, this could be the son of David which means the rightful king of the Jews, right? The Messiah, the descendant from the line of David. Now, when they said this, this, outright, this, this outraged the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had to react, and so they, they pointed at Jesus, and they told the crowds, the only way he can cast out demons is by the power of Satan. And the Pharisees, they couldn't deny that Jesus cast out the demon and healed this guy, so they had, to, they, they had to demonize him. They had to make false accusations towards him. They couldn't deny the act, so they had to just say that the acts were evil. Now, this is where I, I, I really love Jesus' reaction to this. Jesus reacts with a very logical side, right? And, and this, we see this very logical, practical side of him. It says, knowing their thoughts, Jesus addressed how illogical that argument was. Okay, he's basically saying, so wait a second, guys, you're telling me that Satan is casting out Satan, that the devil is tearing his own kingdom apart. If he's doing that, 
His kingdom's going to be divided. It's going to fall apart. And that's just logic, right? And so we often forget that there is a very logical, practical side of our faith. We often forget that, yes, there is a faith component. There's a spiritual component. There are some things that Jesus teaches that the world just, they can't fathom it because it doesn't seem logical to them, right? Like those who are first come last and those who are last come first. Some people that doesn't make sense to them. But we see that God wants us to use our logical brains while we also put our faith into him. It's okay to be practical and logical and have common sense. Jesus did. And so he also uses another argument. He says, well, you guys are saying that I cast out demons by the power of Satan. Your sons do it, other members of the ministry. By what power are they using? Are they also using the power of Satan? And he was turning their own illogical argument right back on them. Again, using argument or using logic and using their own words, he fires right back at them. He says, guys, your argument does not make any sense. And then Jesus says, how can one cast out a demon without first having the power and authority to bind the devil? He calls him the strong man. So Jesus says, how can you go into Satan's territory, right? The strong man's house, take his possessions, steal his possessions without first binding him. And the only way to bind the devil is by the power of the spirit, by the power of God. So Jesus is referring to his power and the power of all believers to overcome Satan and that we can go in and we can pray for the deliverance of people who are in the clutches of hell, right? They are under the strong man's power that we can go in, we can bind the devil and pull people out of a spiritually bad place. What this reminded me of when I, when I read this is, I am, am, am disturbed and bothered by how many Christians do not speak of deliverance in God's power to deliver. Well, Corey, I'm just addicted. I feel this way. God can deliver you of that. Well, Corey, I drown in depression and anxiety. God can deliver you of that. Well, Corey, my eye always wanders every time a good-looking guy walks by or a good-looking woman. God can deliver you of that. And if we stop believing that God can deliver us from, from hell, if we stop believing that God can deliver us from our sin and our actions, then we have stopped believing that God has power. And so Jesus says, how else can we snatch people out of the clutches of hell but by binding Satan? And we have to believe that God has the power to do that. Jesus also makes a very firm case that, listen, you have to pick a side. Jesus eliminates all possibility of people remaining indifferent to him. You're either for me or you're against me. That's what he says. And he says, those who choose to follow me, this is very interesting. He says, they will be forgiven of every single sin and every single blasphemy. So every evil thing they've done and every evil thing they've said about Jesus, he says, I'll forgive you of all those things if you'll follow me. But then he says, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that will not be forgiven. Now we get into this very interesting conversation and debate about what is the unforgivable sin? What is the thing we can do that God will not forgive us of? So here's the thing. Anyone who wants a relationship with Jesus and anyone who wants to be forgiven, they will be. 
anyone. If you've killed 75 people, if you have done awful things, if you have abused people, if you have stolen, if you have lied, whatever it is, if you've been addicted to the most graphic pornography or even acted out on those things, however far down into sin you have gotten, if you want to be forgiven, if you want to humble yourself and have a relationship with Jesus, Jesus will take you. He will take you, he will forgive you, he will restore you. So what is the unforgivable sin? The unforgivable sin is the sin that we are too arrogant to repent for. It is the sin that we don't think is a sin. Therefore, we never ask for God's help with it. Basically, the unforgivable sin is the sin that we refuse to ask forgiveness for. So guys, what does that mean? Because I'll be quite frank. There are a lot of you out there that live in a sinful manner and you haven't recognized it. You don't see it. Whether that be gossip or whether that be sexual sin, whether that be racism or some kind of hatred or whatever the case may be, there are a lot of you out there that are living alongside something that God does not permit. So what do we do? We need to read the word of God because this word defines what is right and what is wrong. It defines what kind of people will inherit the kingdom of God and what kind of people will not. So we need to first read the word of God. And then I recommend, I've done this a thousand times in my Christian walk. God, show me any sin in my heart. Show it to me. Reveal it to me. And once God does that, we need to address it. We need to ask God to forgive us. And we need to turn from that sin. So not just say we're sorry. We need to walk away from that sin. We need to not partake in that sin anymore. What is the unforgivable sin? the sin that we refuse to ask forgiveness for. That's it. So if we knowingly sin, guys, that's even worse. If you do read the Bible and you see that certain things are wrong in a sin, but you continue to do them, that's very scary territory. So Jesus says, if we speak against him, that can be forgiven. But if you speak against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. What does that mean? What that means is this. If we have knowledge of the Holy Spirit, that means that we've gotten to a certain level with Jesus. It says in, first, it says in uh, Ephesians 1.13 that all of you who have called on the name of Jesus have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We've had an encounter with God. So here's the thing. If we have an encounter with God, if we know what is right and wrong, and we choose to do what is wrong, that is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It is having a knowledge of what is right but choosing to do what is wrong. So let me ask you this. Are we so arrogant and are we so foolish to know the commands of God yet still push against them? I cannot tell you how many people in the last 11 years have come to me and said, I know that this is wrong, but I continue to do it. They'll make excuses because that's what we do, right? We're self-righteous people, which means we compare ourselves to the person next to us in the hopes that we're better than they are. What people do is they said, I do this, but hey, look, they do this. Their sin is worse than mine, right? Do we know the commands of God yet still push against them? And this kind of arrogance, that's what it is, guys. The kind of arrogance that thinks we can know what is right continue to do what's wrong and not think that we're going to have to pay for that? That kind of arrogance leads us to what the King James Version calls 
a reprobate mind, a worthless mind, a corrupt mind. James says this, James 4, 17. James says, so it is a sin to know the good and yet not do it. It is a sin to know what is right, but to willingly not do that. That is wrong. It's wrong. And then like I said before, Paul says this in Romans 1, 28. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, listen and chew on that for a second. And I'm talking to Christians here because some people didn't think it was worthwhile to do what God told them to do. It wasn't worthwhile to read their Bible or to pray or to come to church or to be in community because they did not think it was worthwhile to acknowledge God. God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. Those who know what's right and choose to do what's wrong, eventually God removes his hands and says, if that's what you want, you can have it. Okay, so here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna ask you a couple of questions just to kind of recap what we've talked about today. Let's take an inventory, you and I, okay? I'm not gonna give you the answers to these questions. You're gonna have to give you the answers to these questions. The first one is this, guys, and I'll tell you what, I have not always done well with this. Do we properly Sabbath? What does that mean? Do you intentionally rest? Now, let me, let me clarify that. If one doesn't do anything, there's no reason to rest because that's what your whole life is. It says that after God worked for six days creating everything, whether you think that's metaphorical or whether you think it's literal days, God worked for a period of time and then he rested. It's because he worked. And it's the same with us. Those of us who work hard, who pour our lives into whatever we do, we have to rest because we can't do those things well unless we take time to rest. So Sabbath is about resting physically, mentally, spiritually. It's a time for us to read the word of God, other books on our faith. It's a time for us to pray, to reflect on him, to reflect on what we're doing, to reflect on our family, whatever is going on. And it's a time for us to worship. Are we doing these things on purpose? And are we doing these things consistently? Are we Sabbathing properly? Only you can answer that. Do we have a biblical perception of Jesus? Have we become a people that want to murder the biblical Jesus and replace him with a Jesus of our own design? Let me ask you this. If you're watching this right now, maybe you're not a believer, or maybe you're just getting into this. Do you want to discover the real Jesus? If you're a Christian watching this, do we want to discover the real Jesus? It's interesting. Sometimes I'll get pretty heated and mad when I'm teaching, and I'll have someone say, man, you got mad up there. Why were you mad? Because Jesus gets mad sometimes. Because Jesus sometimes sees the injustice in the world and he sees the lackadaisical approach to faith. And sometimes Jesus gets so mad he fashions whips and turns over tables. Jesus gets mad. And there are times when it is righteous indignation and we should also get mad. But do we want that Jesus? Do we want the biblical Jesus who holds us accountable and says, this is right and this is wrong? Or do we want a Santa Claus Jesus? Do we want a pot-smoking hippie Jesus? 
Do we want a Republican Jesus? Do we want a socialist Jesus? Or do we want the biblical Jesus? Let me ask you this. Whose terms is our faith built upon? Is it on God's terms? Or is it on our terms? Kind of goes along with the question above it. What are we in this for? Are we in this to pursue our creator? Are we in this to glorify the God that made us and the universe and everything around us? Or is it just about what we can get out of it? Where's our heart when it comes to our faith? Is it about us? Or is it about him? Who gets the glory, right? Us or him? Do we follow the model of Jesus when it comes to uh, dealing with opposition? <laughs> it's almost laughable, right? Because we don't. When we face opposition, when things happen around us, when someone treats us poorly or speaks bad about us or whatever the case may be, how do we deal with it? Do we deal with it like Jesus? Are we humble servants that strive to love all people or do we just want to win an argument? right? Do we just want to get on Facebook and talk about masks or no masks, Republican or Democrat? Do we just want to get on there and, and, and fight and debate and post as many scriptures as we can and throw it in the face of others? What are we doing? Or do we want to go demonstrate the kingdom? Do we want to go teach about the kingdom? Do we want to be servants to the world around us? Go back to what Matthew said. He didn't come to scream in the streets, Jesus he didn't come to win arguments and debates. He came to demonstrate the kingdom. Is that what we're doing? Are we demonstrating the kingdom? Here's the last question, and guys, I think it's the most important. And I'm not trying to be condemning. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty or ashamed. I care about your soul. Have we addressed and truly repented for the sin in our lives? All throughout the word of God, all throughout the word of God, it reaffirms over and over and over again that if we do not address the evil in our hearts, there is a punishment for that. That if we do not address the evil in our hearts, we cannot inherit a righteous kingdom if we are not righteous. It doesn't mean we're perfect. We're going to have struggles. We're going to make mistakes. But are we humble enough to go back to Jesus and say, I screwed up. I did it wrong. Help me with this. Humble me. Correct me. Have we addressed and have we repented? Have, have, we, have we tried to move away from the evil that we engage in? Have we become willingly negligent to Christ's commands? Listen to that. How many people over the years have looked at me and said, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but look, they do it too. And that doesn't matter. It's not about what they're doing. It's about what you're doing. You're not going to be able to stand in front of God and say, well, well, other people looked at porn too. Other people were hateful and racist too. Other people cheated on their taxes too. No, no, no. God's going to say, no, no, I'm not looking at them right now. I'm looking at you. And you know what was right. And you knew what was wrong. And you did what was wrong. Does that stir something in your soul right now? Or are you just thinking, man, that guy's really judgmental. What a jerk. Look at how angry he is. Sin should bother 
the believer. Sin should bother the one that claims to follow the righteous Messiah King, Jesus Christ. Sin should bother us. Does it bother you? I look forward to seeing you in person. I look forward to being around you again. I pray that you're well during this time and I pray that maybe in the next hour after you watch this or sometime during the week that you will find a time to get alone with just you and God and say, God, look at my heart. God, show me what is in there that you don't want in there. Remove it. Help me. If you're watching this and you're not a believer, but you feel something, please let us know. Get a hold of us, contact us, set up a time to get coffee with us or come into the office, whatever the case may be. Info at experiencecc.com. Send us an email, give us a call. If you're in here and you are, if you're watching this and you are a Christian, we always take communion. And man, I look forward to when we can do that again together. But I recommend sometime this week, take communion. Remember that Jesus Christ, represented by the bread, was beaten, bloodied, and abused so we could be healed. Remember that Jesus shed his blood. That's what the wine represents. So our sin can be forgiven. That we don't have to shed our blood or shed the blood of animals that Jesus Christ was the ultimate sacrifice that poured out his blood and it forgives us of our sin, relieves us of our shame and our guilt. If you need anything from us, please, if you need prayer, email muhammad at experiencecc.com. Get a hold of us. Let's not do this alone and let's not let sin go unaddressed. Father, Lord, I thank you, God, for today. Lord, as I and whoever does this with me, God, takes this bread, Lord, remind us that your body was broken and abused for us, Lord, so we could be healed. And God, as we take this wine, remember, remind us, God, how sweet your blood was, God. Lord, even through such a brutal, violent act, God, that through that, Lord, we can receive salvation. We can receive healing and hope. We have a future and a destiny, God, because of the blood that you shed on the cross, Lord. We thank you for that. Lord, we love you, God. Humble us, give us strength, God. Let us know that if we would just fall at your feet, you're a merciful God, you're a gracious God, you're a forgiving God. Convict our hearts, Lord. Direct us and lead us, Jesus. I pray for everyone watching, God. I pray that you just bless their home, bless their relationships, bless them, God. Keep your hand on us, Lord. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. See you soon. See you next week.